Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we will talk all about the science that has cropped up in our faces this week. Who are we? Well, I'm Stu and with me on the show, as always, I have Claire. Hello, Stu. And Chris. Well, hello there. Now, Claire, what have you brought in for us that's sciencey enough to have caught your attention? Well, this week we have a special guest on the show, Dr. Tom Fairman. You might remember him if you are a regular listener on the show from a couple of years ago. Tom came in and talked about his PhD, uh, talking about eucalyptus ash, um, mountain ash, and um, incidences of fire. In between, you know, us talking to Tom and now, there's been some pretty big fires in Victoria and New South Wales and, and Queensland. There's been some catastrophic fires um, from, the, from the 2019 and 2020 season. And um, Tom's been doing some work with the Victorian government and the University of Melbourne looking at how you regrow forests, specifically, you know, mountain ash and alpine forests, after they have been burnt. So do they just regrow automatically? I mean, I thought they did, but no. You have to actually get out there, harvest the seed, you know, get some helicopters and then spread that seed around and, um, you know, help actually regenerate that forest. So we're gonna be talking about the process of that, which is which sounds incredible. Sowing, sowing the seeds of ash in the ashes. That's right, yeah. And Chris, what have you got for us this week? Well, Stu, you may remember a few weeks ago I talked about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, and I got particularly excited about the Ig Nobel Physics Prize, which was, well, it was to do with complex systems, but particularly the, um, you know, the interaction of pedestrians, you know, why pedestrians do and don't bump into each other. Do you remember that one? Yes, what, and like I said, fun it was. It was. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of really liked it because it was showing how, you know, kind of a fairly simple concept can show some complicated behavior and it's actually quite tricky to, to model and this is where physics comes in. Um, well, now the, the Nobel Prizes have been awarded and the Nobel Prize for Physics has partly gone to someone who's, I guess, shown how birds don't bump into each other. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's legitimate stuff. But I just want to say that it's also about similarly complex systems and how this kind of... Uh, I guess complex behaviour can come out from a seemingly disordered mm. thing. So it's, it's covering similar ground to the pedestrians, but uh, yeah, it covers birds. It covers um, well, it covers the big one um, regarding complex systems, which is the climate. Yeah, some climate modellers were also shared part of the Nobel Prize in Physics this year, and I think we can all agree that modelling the climate and showing the effect and predicting the effect of human-caused climate change is a very important and worthy endeavour. Oh, and I'll also give a shout-out to the other science prizes, which have also been awarded, but, you know, I'm interested in the physics in particular. 
That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Well, we can hear in more detail about what the uh, physics prize is later in the show. So please stay tuned. summer bushfires devastated so many diverse forest ecosystems across Australia. But can these ecosystems bounce back? And are there ways that we can help support them in the process? Future fire risk researcher, Dr. Tom Fairman from the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne, has been working with the Victorian government to support some of these forests in their regeneration and is here to talk to us all about what he's been doing and what's been happening. Tom, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello. So, Tom, let's start, maybe rewind, go back to the Black Summer bushfires. How badly were the sort of, you know, forest ecosystems, and I guess the ones you were looking at, the alpine forests and the mountain ash, how badly were they damaged um, and, and what sort of proportions um, were damaged in the Black Summer bushfires? Yeah, so I suppose the alpine forests, and I'll be talking mainly about the alpine ash forests in particular, there's probably about 500,000 hectares of that forest type in Victoria. So that's alpine ash and mountain ash. And in the black summer bushfires, probably about 80,000 hectares of that, those two forest types were burned. And that was predominantly the alpine ash forest type of that. You know, that's close to about 20% of mm. its entire range. So for that to that amount to burn in a single season is a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a decent chunk of it. And what do we know about the resilience of the um, alpine ash forests? Um, you know, two fires like, you know, the ones from the Black Summer fires, but also previous ones as well. Yeah. So, and I guess this is the thing. We, we often, when we're talking about bushfires, we talk about the one fire. And I mean, it's understandable because... You know, it's a it's an emergency. You're, you're fighting the fire as it's happening, and you're, you're directing all your attention to that. But what's really important when we're thinking about forest types and vegetation communities is obviously what we call the fire regime, which is the longer term view. So, what's particularly important to consider with Black Summer and these forest types is in Victoria alone in the last twenty years we've had a huge amount of fire. So. Black Summer was big, but it was about the third fire in the last 20 years that was over 1 million hectares in size. So mm. what you're having is, um, you know, one fire can be okay for vegetation communities and forests, but then if you're starting to have them pile on top of one another, that's when you really start to uh, notice shifts. So mm. to talk about alpine ash forests specifically in that context, the, the technical term for those these types of forests are obligate cedar forests. So what that means is they're obliged to seed is the way to think about that <laughs> yeah. in the, in the yeah. technical sense. But what that means is when they get burned by a high severity fire, the mature trees die and they have their seed in the canopy. And as they die, they obviously dry out and seeds drop from the canopy and the forest basically regrows from seed. Right. The real concern here, though, is when those seeds are regrowing into trees, they aren't producing seeds themselves for about 15 to 20 years. So They aren't producing seeds? No, they aren't. Right. So what that basically means, and we call this in the, 
the technical way, immaturity risks. But what that basically means is if a fire comes back within that 15 to 20 years, then um, it's a really serious issue for that forest because they're no longer able to regenerate. And you have portions of the landscape where this forest type effectively disappears. And why is this forest type so important in the Victorian landscape? Well, it's a really iconic forest type for one. So I suppose it's worth starting that way. If I were to say to you, you know, imagine a beautiful eucalypt forest um, for a lot of Victorians and probably Melbournians, and you would imagine something like the Black Spur, which is just outside of Hillsville. And that's that really iconic road where you're driving through this towering forest that, you know, it's that sort of cathedral mm. shape. This forest type is that you know they, they can grow to be 90 meters tall 100 meters tall which is putting it in wow. the categories of the tallest trees on the planet they're a beautiful looking forest type but you know outside of just the aesthetics of it they're really beneficial in terms of the amount of carbon that they store so it's obviously you know in the context of climate change that's pretty important they provide habitat to a range of species and they also you know they're, they're valued for um, their, their timber products as well so they're kind of like the a really highly valued forest type from a variety of perspectives. So what does happen to them does matter because they have pretty serious consequences to a range of range of issues. So I'm interested, you were talking about sort of like, you know, um, the frequency of fires and if, you know, you have these juvenile ash that um, encounter fires too soon, then, you know, they won't, they won't seed. So what are the, what are the potential sort of ways that, um, that these forests can go and change after these um, recurrent fires? What, what ends up happening to them? Well, yeah, so, so let's, they've been burned by one fire. And let's say they were burned, you know, in the Black Summer Bush, uh, sorry, the Black Saturday bushfires 10 years ago or whatever. They've, they're, they're coming back, they're growing, they've, they've turned into sort of thickets and saplings. They get burned again by a high severity fire. So they get basically cooked, you know, of all of those stereotypical images of how, you know, bad looking post fire environments, this is sort of the, the, the stereotype of them. They're completely blackened, they've lost all their leaves and they've had no seed to put on. So they haven't set any seeds. So they're gone, basically. That species is no longer there. And what basically happens is that it transitions to a different type of ecosystem. What will come back is some understory species that have either been able to mature faster. So you'll have sort of shorter, shrubbier, like wattle mm. species that come mm-hmm. back. And in some areas, you don't, they won't come back either. You'll just have a transition to sort of more of a grassland looking thing. So this is why it's quite a significant issue. If you're thinking about the biggest shift you can have between a forest type that could be 90 metres tall, mm. you know, that cathedral kind of look of a forest transitioning to effectively grassland. Like it's a real, it's a real serious, it's a very serious change. And um, yeah, it's happening now. <laughs> and um, it's, it's something to be um, definitely aware of more than aware, also um, active in trying to mitigate this effect, I guess, um, which leads me to the project that um, you've been involved in to reseed some of these forests. Um, Can can you talk to us a little little bit about what's involved in reseeding these forests? So basically what happens, and I have to say this is like what happened over Black Summer with these forests where they got impacted like this. It's not the first time, and thankfully we have a lot of skills and people who have worked in this exact problem before. Mm. So it means that myself included and many other people who are working on this issue, as soon as the fires were burning, we were basically looking to 
where it was burning into these young forests and pretty much tallying up the number of hectares as it was happening and going, okay, this is going to be a bad year and we know where we're going to have to go from here. And so a range of myself and other foresters that were sort of working on this general program, effectively what you have to do is you have this really tight window after the fires have burned through an area where you have to pretty much get the seed, stored seed. So you do artificial sowing basically. So you're using helicopters and fixed wing aircrafts to put seed into those aircraft and wow. go over the landscape and you're effectively, well, you're sowing sowing with those um, ash forest species type. So I guess you're not getting the seed from Bunnings. This is no. seed that's been <laughs> collected. Yeah, how does how does that, that process work? So, so it comes from a range of sources uh, and, and in this particular operation it came from a range of sources. Some of it was collected as part of general kind of timber harvesting operations um, throughout Victoria. So because when a forest is harvested, it has to be regrown. Um, it's kind of the business as usual thing mm. for um, the Vic Forest is the, the state-owned enterprise that does that. So they, they collect a stock of seed and basically have it in stock. And the Department of Environment as well has sort of an emergency supply seed stock that they were storing um, somewhere in a number of spots around the state for this sort of purpose too. So there were these effectively seed stocks that were thankfully in existence when this was happening. Uh, and when it was realised that something had to be done about it, and basically those seed stocks were accessed. The downside of it was the amount of seed that was available was never going to be enough to cover the amount of forest that was actually impacted. And so while everyone sort of scrambled together to organise this massive operation, mm. it still meant that it was probably only just under half of the total area that was impacted was able to be re-sown. So, I mean, this is a bit of a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing. It's like at least half or, you know, but only mm. half, you know. Um, so the total amount that was impacted was about 25,000 hectares. So that's 25,000 hectares of forest that was potentially going to transition to non-forest and around 11,500 hectares of that was able to be re-sown. So... That's that's the biggest operation of this type that's ever been done in Victoria. And it was wow. almost, you know, I remember having a few meetings with people where it was almost like, you know, are we going to get this done? <laughs> you know, are we going to yeah. pull this off? And it's incredible that it was something that was able to be done. Yeah. And like you said, there's a very narrow window of time to yeah. be able to do that. Yeah. So you're basically running against, um, <laughs> at that point in time, you're running against snow and you're running against vegetation regrowing. So for alpine ash, what you have to do is you have to get the seed on the ground by before midwinter because you the seed itself needs a, a cue to germinate from mm. the cold because it normally grows in alpine areas. Um, so you need to you're basically rushing to get it out of the helicopter before um, the snow falls. So the fires, you know, were going until February or so. So you had between February and July to organise this massive operation. And the other part of that as well is. After winter, you have the spring growth of whatever's going to regrow in those areas mm. and you can't sow seed out of a helicopter onto something that's already been colonised. So it really was a, a rush basically to well, a, a race against the clock to get that stuff out and as much as you can in that time. Did you get up into the helicopter? 
unfortunately I didn't get up into one of the helicopters. Because oh it, no. <laughs> um what and i have to say this was this was early 2020 that this was all happening so all this was going on just as the coronavirus pandemic was happening as well so i didn't get to go in any helicopters because i was locked down but i mean darn for me but it was also something to reflect on i think god we managed to get all this stuff done across 11,000 hectares while we were all grappling with um using zoom for the first time to arrange some of these meetings absolutely together is the process of reseeding, is that a fairly standard practice across forestry, across all types of forests? Uh, no, because I suppose for other forest types, generally, I suppose after bushfire, they generally have a better capacity to respond to severe fire because, you know, we're talking about ash forests here, but the, the majority of other forest types are the re-sprouter type eucalypts. So... When they get burned by a severe fire, they're usually able to re-sprout and recover. And even though there's some, and this is research that I've done previously, even though some re-sprouted forest types, when they get burned multiple times, they might have an increase in mortality rate. We're still sort of not at that point where we think we have to intervene in those forest types in this sort of style to um, recover those. So it really is the, um, the nature of ash eucalypt forests that they... I mean, I don't want to say like I'm blaming them here, but it's like, oh, they're just, they're just not well adapted to multiple fires. It's our fault. It is. It totally is. Yeah. In preparing for the future now, do you think is, is, is there more of a push to increase the amount of seed from these forest types uh, that we keep on hand? So the Victorian government, when the, the seed stocks were exhausted effectively by this effort. And so the Victorian government made a bit of a concerted effort and it's still undergoing to collect tonnes and tonnes of seed um, to basically rebuild those stocks. The question is always going to be, how long do you do this for? And looking to the future, the trajectory that we're on for climate change, there are going to be more large fires like this and the tricky thing is every time we have a really large fire and it impacts ash forests, it sets the clock back to zero. So, you know, there's 80,000 hectares of forest out there that is young. And so it means it's vulnerable for the next 15 years. So if there's another bushfire of whatever size, it's going to be an issue again. So it is something that we need to be strategic about in saying, well, how much seed are we going to have in stocks just in case and, you know, how we what, to, to recover these forest types. But it's, it's a tricky thing to plan for and um, it's kind of always going to be about making sure you've got the right amount of seed at the right time to be able to do it. And if we don't have the seed, then it's about having those probably difficult questions about, well, these forest types are going to transition and, um, you know, are we aware of what we're losing? Which I know is a bit of a bummer to sort of think about, but um, I think it's just part of the reality of the direction we're heading in. When do you think we'll be able to see or you'll be able to see the results of the reseeding that you've done and, you know, what's what sort of been effective? We've already got some results that have come in. So plenty of um, staff members from the Department of Environment in about nine months after the resowing were done, went out and laid out transits and counted seedlings. And it was really good to see. I think it was across about 130 sites that they sampled, they looked at. Um, I think probably about close to 90% of those had seedlings coming up from it. So that was, like, that, that was that's good, <laughs> basically. 
it's just going to be a matter of monitoring that and understanding how it changes with time because for seedlings it's not just fire drought herbivores um there's there's it's not easy to be a young seedling for a tree you're always going to be encountering things so making sure we have a good handle of how they're recovering over time is going to be pretty important and um I think we're going to have a lot of research that's done in the next couple of years that sort of comes out of what happened over the black summer fires in these forest types. So I think we'll constantly be learning. And Tom, obviously this is a um, pretty big project. Were there a lot of people involved? Were there a lot of organisations? Yeah, it was a. It really was one of those examples where, uh, and and I should just make it clear that so many people were involved with this, and so many people came together to work on it. It was um, staff from the Department of Environment. Private consulting groups came in and helped, um, Vic Forest staff, Parks Victoria staff, and it probably really highlighted how, you know, when you have a fire that's a landscape, it's not one person's problem or one person's issue. You know, all these different groups came together to go, well, you know, it's burning across national park, it's burning across state forest, you know, we need to kind of come together and do something about this. So it was really great to be a part of that. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. And, yeah, thanks for sharing your insights um, and, yeah, letting us know what is happening to support the regrowth of these beloved forests, um, that you know, the world's tallest flowering plants. Um, we love them and we look forward to celebrating them for years to come. So thank you very much. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Right, it is that time of year again when the Nobel Prizes um, have been awarded. Um, look, we covered various kind of prizes on Lost in Science. We have the, um, I guess, the Eureka Awards or the Archies, as we like to call them. Yeah, I think they're coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, which yeah. I like to think of as the Logies of Science. Um, there's a Prime Minister's Prizes. I don't know what they are equivalent to. Maybe I think they went overseas on, on holiday to Hawaii this year. Oh, okay. Um, the Nobel Prizes, though, are, of course, like the big ones that everyone kind of keeps an eye on. And uh, the science prizes have been awarded. That's the prizes in physics, chemistry and physiology and medicine uh, joined together. There's also the economics prize, which sometimes is science as well. Um, they try and squeeze some psychology sometimes into the economics prize. But um, I'm going to focus on the three big science prizes in particular. And, of course, being a physicist, I'm going to look at the physics prize. But I do want, do want to give a shout out to the other ones as well, because solidarity with our scientific colleagues, I guess, here. First up was the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Sorry, it was or Medicine, not and Medicine. It was awarded jointly to David Julius and Adem Padapuchian for their discoveries of receptors for temperature and touch. So ah. this was um, basically there. Yeah, they figured out exactly where, how we feel, um, yeah, touch and sense temperature. And so, one of the things they did to do that was mucking around with uh, capsaicin, which is the chemical from chilies that causes a burning sensation. turns out it does activate the temperature receptors. And wow. so they're, they're able to apply that chemical to find out what was responding to that um, and was the actual receptor? It, it seems a bit of a touchy feely prize for the for the <laughs> Nobel Science Prizes, doesn't it? Ah, uh, seems pretty hot to me, Stuart. The Chemistry Prize that was awarded to Benjamin List and David W. C. Macmillan for the development of asymmetric organocatalysis, catalysis, catalysis, organocatalysis. 
I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't even really understand what it is. Apparently, it's just a way of constructing molecules that is uh, more efficient, um, is very beneficial for things, obviously, with like, you know, making new medicines, that kind of stuff. But apparently, it's also, it's a cheaper and greener way to do chemistry. So, well, we love that. Yeah. But the physics prize. Yes. Let's just talk about the physics prize because it was kind of a global significance, I think I'm going to say. Um, so it was awarded for groundbreaking contributions to our understanding of complex systems. One half jointly went to Sayukuro Manabe and Klaus Hasselmann for the physical modeling of Earth's climate, quantifying variability and reliably predicting global warming. And the other half went to Giorgio Parisi for the discovery of the interplay of disorder and fluctuations in physical systems from atomic to planetary scales. And yes, I am reading straight off the Nobel Prize citation from the website. And why not? It's the most accurate way to get the description, isn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. Now, so the way the Nobel Prize works is, um, you know, one person can win the whole thing or it can be shared equally between two people, or it'd be given to three people, but when it does that, they one person gets half and the other two get a quarter. So in this case, this physics prize was split essentially into two. Giorgio Parisi got half, and the other half went to Siyukuro Banabe and Klaus Hasselmann. Of course, the other notable thing about the Nobel Prize is it can only be given to people who are alive, when the um, well, when the prize is decided, I suppose, or I think maybe when the nominations occur. I'm not sure when the actual cutoff date is, but the point is that sometimes when you have, as we'll see in this one, when you have work that was done decades previously, mm. you know there may have been other collaborators along the way, um, but if they're not around anymore, then they miss out. I guess it's not their fault. So look, um, there's quite a lot to unpack there. I'm going to start with Giorgio Parisi, um, even though his work came after the other two, but it's all kind of related. So he studies disordered systems. And these are systems where, like they're made out of like different elements which interact and there's something that they call frustration. <laughs> I've um, been feeling a bit of that recently. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think I know what that feels like. Yeah. Well, it's... um. It's something that basically it stops these systems from reaching a, a kind of a stable equilibrium easily. The comparison that he used was a, a Shakespeare play. So imagine like there's a, you know, in the, let's say there's a play where one person wants to become friends with two other people, wants to, you know, you be, you know, be friendly with them, but they're enemies as two other people. And then how do they juggle those kind of relationships and be like shifting you can't have them in the mm. same room together. It's a complicated kind of situation. And that's your frustration. Right. Got it. A more physics example is something that they call spin glass. And <laughs> this is like, it, it doesn't sound like a glass, but it's, I guess the structure it creates is a bit glass-like. Um, no, it's not from spinning a glass, Claire. Okay. Um, so they have something like, say, mentioned like iron atoms. A few iron atoms sprinkled into a carbon, sort of carbon, sorry, a copper metal and copper is non-magnetic um iron is magnetic um so you know normally if you have a bunch of iron uh atoms together they will try to align and little tiny magnets align their magnetic field but with the spin glass you know sometimes they'll try to align you know there's not many there sometimes they'll try to align sometimes they'll be opposite to each other and it's very hard for them to find out which way to to turn and it's a very disordered, seemingly random system. But Giorgio Parisi, he analysed a lot of these. He p 
going to put the same kind of configuration through multiple rounds of modeling and he found there were patterns to the to the way they behaved and he showed how there was this kind of these ordered patterns could be predicted out of these disordered systems and it was something that then could be applied to a wide range of other fields where you have similarly disordered systems and one of those is as I mentioned in the introduction birds right um, so you've seen like murmurations of starlings, have you? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah well, you have amazing. like huge flocks of starlings flying and they create these really beautiful shapes in the sky and these kind of waves move through them. And mm. you think, how do they know? How do, how do they coordinate this? And it is this similar kind of thing where basically you have these individual little elements which have different kind of influences or forces acting on them and you get this kind of ordered behavior out of what's a seemingly random and disordered system. Um, so yeah, Parisi did a lot of studying of starlings and worked out things like, you know, what the different kind of waves that move through is about, apparently it's to avoid predators. Mm. Um, but the wave, it's interesting, the wave can move through faster than the speed the birds are flying. So it's a really good example of how you can get these, yeah, these, like I said, these complex um, ordered behavior out of a, a very kind of random seeming system. But like when we're talking out of uh, um, disordered systems, um, I guess the biggest example is, and the most important example to us, is the Earth's climate. And that is the other half of the Nobel Prize that was awarded this year. And I want to stress that this work came first before Giorgio Parisi's. These people didn't build on his work, um, but they're kind of accompanying on a similar theme. So one of the recipients here was Siyukuro Manabe, who um, did his work, he was Japanese, but he did his work in the US, in Princeton in the 1960s. And with some colleagues, he modeled, uh, just simple models of the climate as kind of a one dimensional column of air. And like there'd been previous calculations of the effect of say the solar radiation, the infrared radiation from the ground and how it's the greenhouse effect. But he took into account all the air movement within that column and water vapor, um, how that works, where that condenses, and to get a more realistic model of what's actually happening in the atmosphere. Um, and that was kind of that was done in the 1960s, as I said. So this was like a long time ago in this in this kind of the scheme of what we think of as the as the climate change sort of movement. But he definitely showed how um, yeah changes in carbon dioxide would lead to. Uh, increases in temperature in this very simple model. The it was a very simple model though. Um, so they this was initially started with this first one column. In 1975, they published a a global climate model, a very simple global climate model, um, and they did that on a computer that had uh, half a megabyte of RAM, and they managed to model the whole kind of global climate with that. So wow, it's pretty impressive what they did yeah. um, a long time ago. My my phone's got more RAM than that. I mean, I can't. I don't. I don't know how to go about modelling the climate on my phone though. No, Stu, you're not trying hard enough. Come yeah, on. I should. I should be trying harder. Obviously. Yeah. So they were their work. That was followed up by um, Klaus Hasselmann. Klaus Hasselmann, as the name might suggest, is German, but he also worked in the in the United States, and he kind of did more complicated models where he was basically modelling the weather and trying to find their climate signals in that. Um, so weather is, as you can imagine, it's a very, it is a very um, chaotic system. You get small changes um, can lead to big differences in the weather. You know, the famous butterfly effect, a butterfly flapping its wings in South America can lead to a hurricane across the other side of the world. 
But um, yeah, like I, like I said, the thing, key thing here is to think about the difference between weather and climate. Now, one of the analogies of the Nobel Prize people use is walking the dog, say. So imagine like you're walking your dog um, and you look at the tracks that the dog is making and the dog is kind of running around, all the places going around your legs and in and out, this kind of stuff. And from the, it's, it's kind of seemingly random movement of the dog. And is it possible, I guess, from looking at the tracks of the dog to work out the actual walk that you're going on? And that's essentially what they're doing with modeling the, the weather. They're looking at the weather, which is the random noise around um, the climate signal. And Hasselman did manage to show that weather, you could separate the noise, you could separate the weather and the climate, and the climate trends were much more, I guess, stable and predictable, as opposed to weather, which is, like I said, very noisy, very unpredictable. I mean, we still can't predict the weather very far ahead. You can't um, predict the dog. You can't predict the dog. But yeah. we can predict climate much more reliably. Um, it is a different thing. So he showed, yeah, that, that you could actually separate those two effects. And he also showed how you could find, in this signal, you could find the fingerprints of human-caused climate change. You could see the effects of the greenhouse gases, and you could see the fact that they were being um, caused by uh, our emissions. So, and that was done in the 1980s, and that was... Again, I guess early days when we think of some of this stuff, but it kind of set the scene for what has happened since, which is, uh, again, more accurate models, but also the demonstration that we have, you know, how confident we are that it is uh, human cause, cause climate change. So, yeah, it is kind of, it's this global significance, I guess, coming from these seemingly um, simple things of um, physics of complex systems. But, um, yeah, I think it just shows how... Um, understanding the complexity of the world and things that are going on can have can be so important to us and to our future and that's all we have time for on another episode of lost in science thanks for staying with us lost in science is recorded in the studios of 3cr on the lands of the Kulin nation and broadcasts across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight.gmail.com. On Twitter, we are lostinsights1, or on Facebook, we are lostinsights on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris and Stu get lost in Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.